1: I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business and other interesting fields of endeavor. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hola, John. (laughs) Glad that Wakefest is over now?
2: Yes, finally.
1: (laughs) Who's our guest this week?
2: We actually have two this week, John. Our next guests are the founders and owners of San City Brewing Company in the historic Maritime Village of Northport, New York on Long Island. In six short years, their beers have garnered national acclaim and an ever-growing legion of devoted followers across Long Island. Last year, they opened a second, larger location, much to the delight of their fans.
1: Welcome to the Beer Hour, William Kiernan and Kevin Seiler. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's, uh, it's good to see you guys, even though we just saw you guys like a day or two ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well,
0: it's That's... always good to see you guys. And, yeah, man. Um, it was great to be down in Miami for a couple of days, so...
1: Absolutely, absolutely absolutely so let's uh so let's start at the beginning as we always like to do here on the beer hour uh, I want to ask when did each of you basically first become aware of craft beer and how did you first get into the business I defer to you Kevin
0: um all right I mean I got into craft beer uh, many years ago you know basically when you know stone Brewing Company and trogues came into into play that's when I started uh, started realizing there was you know a lot more to beer than what I was drinking back in my college days. After drinking those beers, and then and then all of a sudden there was there were the New England IPAs that came on the scene. I started homebrewing back in 2005. Oh wow! Okay. And um, that's really when you know I started to see how much you know how much you can do with craft beer, uh, how much different the product can be with uh, with with the ingredients that are out there. So that's when I started experimenting and really just got into. You know, seeing what other beers were out there and, and my palate started changing and, you know, there's just so many interesting flavors now. I mean, it's come, you know, it's just gotten crazy now. I mean, <laughs> yeah. How
3: many different people, so.
1: yeah, to say the least. Absolutely. Kev,
3: does that mean that you think I was like ahead of my time? Because, you know, when when we started brewing, like you were really brewing, I was kind of hanging out watching you. And, uh, you know, I was throwing lavender, (laughs) you know, St. John's, whatever was growing in your backyard, I was just throwing in the pot. It's it's completely true. He was doing that, just standing
0: over (laughs) the shoulder, picking picking things from the garden and throwing it in the beer. I'm like, what are you doing?
1: (laughs) That's awesome. How did you guys meet, by the way? I mean, where did this all come about?
0: Well, it's a long story actually, but, um, we, we were both, you know, Bill, Bill still is a, a teacher and actively teaching. Oh, okay. um, I, I, I was a teacher as well. And we kind of met each other in that, in that world. Um, and then back in, what was it? Maybe 2008, okay. um, Bill actually rented an apartment from me in my house. So then we were kind of like roommates in, in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you guys are slumlord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, then, I mean, that's when uh, I was home brewing back then, and, you know, Bill was pretty big into craft beer, and um, we, you know, we started making a lot of beer together and drinking a lot of beer together. So um, then it's just been since, you know, now it's been, uh, we're going on 50, probably 15 years, maybe more than that, probably 20 years knowing each other at this point. Nice. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's nice. Can,
1: can you guys describe the craft beer scene in Long Island back, say, around 2014? What was it like out there?
0: Uh, 2014, so that was, you know, right right around when we were opening, right in Northport, um, or at least we were building out our space in Northport. The, the craft beer scene on Long Island was, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was slow. There weren't many breweries out here. So um, I guess Blue Point, you know, Blue Point was the – the biggest one, right? And I want to say, you know, Greenport Harbor just came onto the scene, and Barrier, and Barrier, right?
1: Okay. You
0: know, um, and and Great South Bay. So there were maybe you know five, five, six breweries that were really um, on Long Island. So um, you know, it was uh, it it was interesting because it's completely different now. I mean, I don't, I, I I lost count of how many breweries we have here now, but just in the short period of time, how much it's grown. And how different, differently it's perceived by the public too. You know, it's just been it's been a growing scene. I know, probably similar to Miami. Yeah,
1: yeah. I yeah. think uh, Miami's always behind the times, though. I mean, we always take about ten years to catch up to everybody else. <laughs> so.
0: well, no, but we were behind. I mean, I think New York was behind the times too. You know, I mean, you had obviously California, Colorado. Uh, there was there was so much. You know, such a big beer scene. And I just kept thinking, I'm like, we gotta, we gotta open a brewery. Like, we gotta get on this before, before everybody else catches on. That was the truth, and that's kind of, you know, I think we
3: got in, we got in at a good time. Yeah, so, and I think that's what actually got us, you know, in a little bit of, of, hot water up in Northport is that, you know, we started, you know, we started making beer, and then, and then Kevin, you know, intelligent as he is, he was like, you know, we should, we should get our own canning line which seemed like a a radical premise, given that we had just opened. And um, once we started, you know, having the ability to can our own beers, um, it it was just lights out. Like people started showing up and the village kind of, you know, became the village government became really kind of, I don't know, dismayed by that, I guess you'd say. (laughs) So they were mad you were bringing people. people in. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> that people were all of a sudden hanging out, you know, in this in this sleepy village at, you know, 8 in the morning on a Saturday, um, you know, down the block, you know, which all the, the businesses appreciated. You of know, course. I think the residents were proud, um, you know, but it was a whole new dynamic that people weren't expecting, let alone us, you know, so <clears throat> kind of, you know, it, but, it, but it's that whole, mechanization of what craft brewing is just to be able to package your own beer, you know, really, really changed the whole scene.
1: The story behind the name Sand City is actually pretty unique and a little history lesson. How did you guys land on that name Sand City for your new brewery back in
3: 2015? So uh, our LLC name is uh, the Cal Harbor Beer Company. Cal Harbor is kind of this historical, you know, name of Northport and uh, we were calling ourselves Cow Harbor Brewing. And <clears throat> a couple of months into the process of building out, we had you know a, a dinky sign up, and this these brothers you know showed up, and they're they're local and they're friends of ours. They're good guys. They were like, hey, you know, FYI, we um, own the trademark on this name.
1: Oh. Okay. So
3: so we we're like, oh that's cool. Like, <laughs> like sweet. Um, you know, so so we had to kind of do some um quick thinking. And Sand City is like a, a local beach, you know, kind of down the block across the harbor, uh, you know, in Northport. So, you know, we started playing it back and forth and we we're like, you know, that's that's probably a better name anyway. Um you know, and it was it was really kind of you know ironically. Kevin says, you know, we, we were both teachers. We were actually teaching a prep class, and like for a high school entrance exam, you know, like for these incoming high school kids, and we were in this classroom, Kevin and I, and the classroom was actually dedicated by this company called Steers Sand and Gravel, which operated this sand mine and. That's that's the location that became known as Sand City, uh after that sand mine went out of business. Oh wow. What they were doing was they were they were they're taking sand from the north shore of Long Island and mixing it with Portland cement to build, you know, buildings in Manhattan. So it was kind of this providence. We were just in this room and we're like, geez, you know, this kind of makes sense right now that ironically we're in this room dedicated by this company and right. this is a location we're thinking about it just kind of everything kind of fell together but yeah it's a local beach in our in our hometown of northport
1: that's awesome man that is yeah uh, especially after I mean, uh
3: come up with the name jay wakefield
1: <laughs> yeah well I, I could tell you that well <laughs> it was not like my intention to use my name as a brewery i actually had a a bunch of different options I had gone through. We were actually, I had even settled on, like, 25th Parallel Brewing because Miami is on the 25th Parallel. And right. I actually had a talk with Joey Redner from Cigar City, who I was good friends with and also worked for, and he's like, w- why are you not going to use your name? Because everybody knows you from the homebrew circuit huh. as Jay Wakefield. Like, right. why, why would you change the branding? Why would you not just use the name that you've been using and it's a strong name to stick with that and use that. So that's what I ended up doing instead of being twenty fifth parallel brewing. <laughs> so I mean, I, I I think it sounds a little bit better. <laughs> you
3: know? I mean, it is um it is a strong it is a strong name.
1: It's it was just that I had been doing years of home brewing and homebrew competitions and had poured at like Hunapu Day and stuff like that. And the name on the on the the banners then was Jay Wakefield. Right. So and he was just like, dude, use this. Don't don't try to go and create, you know, recreate the wheel. Just just do what yeah. you got. You know what I mean? So that's how we it, ended you, up with have that.
3: You made a beer called 25th Parallel yet?
1: We should. We I'm should sure. actually. Maybe yeah, that should be should. our next collab. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, speaking of collabs, you know, I I have this uh this bottle here.
1: Ooh. Oh. Oh.
3: <laughs> this is 6 degrees of Kevin Bewinner. Yes. We were going to name this beer uh when we were down there, I think you were in London. Yeah. It was like
1: 2019.
3: Yep. And uh, right, Maria, we were going to name that beer
1: Six Degrees of Kevin Biscotti. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because <laughs> yes. we
2: woke up in a new biscotti.
1: Yes. That, that beer was great, though. It that was beer good. was amazing. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there was a lot of biscotti.
1: Yes.
2: But- You're listening to the Beer Hour, and we're speaking to Bill Kiernan and Kevin Seiler of Sand City Brewing.
1: So you guys opened in 2015. You opened with a ten barrel brew house and tasting room in Northport in October. What were you guys offering? Like, what were your first couple of beers that you opened up with? And which beer really was that first like hitter? You know what I mean?
0: Uh yeah. We so so we opened up. Um, you know, we were we were basically just uh, just doing everything we could to get open. You know, because it was uh, it was kind of like. You know how when you're building out a place everything kind of just comes together last minute. Yes. <laughs> where you know it's it take you're building it for you're building it for a year and then all of a sudden it's like, "Oh, we want to open this weekend." And there's those it's a million different things that you have to get oh. done. So, you know, we had a couple beer, we we obviously had beers in the tank that we were we were going to open up with. And I we started with five different beers um, you know, on opening day. And it just kind of it naturally or organically happened where it was just like those those hoppy beers that we put out there. Everyone was coming in and they're like, oh, my God, this beer is amazing, you know. So then um, we started gravitating toward more of those beers. But, um, you know, I think even to this day, so our biggest selling brand is uh, is a beer called Oops, I Hopped My Pants, <laughs> you know, and that was and, and the funniest thing was that was a beer that was on open like like it was a Saturday morning. I remember the fire marshal came in and he was like, "All right, you guys are good. You can open." And we we're like, "What?" Because we had no idea if we were gonna if it was gonna be that day, that week, that month, or what. Right. So um, so he's like, he's like, "You guys are good. You can open." We're like, "When?" He's like, "Now." So we literally just went on Facebook and we're like, "Hey, by the way, we're open." And I was kegging beer as people are walking in, you know, I'm kegging beer right. off the back. I don't even have a name for this beer. Right. So I, I'm like, I'm like, all right, tap five is up to now. Like we got, we got five beers on tap. Let's go. And they're like, what, what's this beer called? And I'm like, oops, I hopped my pants. It just came like out of nowhere. You know, That's it from awesome. live, you know it's from a Saturday night yes. live. skit. just get I hopped my, uh, oops, I uh, grabbed my pants. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but so we threw that on the board and, I mean that, and we had like another beer called Day Drifter, which was you know lighter style, but you know they're both hazy IPAs, and um, and those just became all of a sudden it was like people were coming in they're like oh my god this beer is great this beer is great so we started brewing some more of that style you know and that's that's kind of just been been our wheelhouse but now you know with a we're on a bigger system now we're on a twenty barrel system here in in Lindenhurst we've got you know, a bunch of 60 barrel tanks and 24 taps. So we're, we're just doing so much more variety now, but still, um, you know, oops out my pants is our biggest selling beer. That's
1: awesome. How, How long was it into the process and into the business that you realized that you needed more space and more brewing capacity? Would you say?
0: Uh, right away because yeah. I mean you've been, you've been to our Northport yeah. Northport location, um you know twenty five hundred square feet of space. Uh, we were we sort of we, we started out we had a bunch of ten barrel fermenters in there, some twenty barrel fermenters in there. That's and I mean a twenty barrel fermenter in that space we had, you know eleven foot ceilings. Oh, it's jammed. They were, they were, yeah, they were jammed. I mean the fact that we could even turn those upright was.
1: It That's a feat.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, then shortly after, you know, within within months of opening, all the 10s were gone and we just we packed it up with as many 20 barrel tanks as we could. You know, we, we ran out. We, we realized that we were very limited in our capacity. So right away we started looking at new sp- new spaces, but it took us three years to find the right spot for a second second location. It took us two years to build it out.
1: That's, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I mean, we are on the business channel, so we're going to kind of dive into this. So you, you found a long vacated CVS in a town called Lindenhurst. The Babylon Industrial Development Agency played an instrumental role in helping you guys turn your dream of a second location into a reality. I think I read that you got, they gave you guys like half a million worth of property and sales tax breaks to get you started. How did you even get on their radar and how important was that incentive to San City Brewing?
3: that was you know really the work of the local government in lindenhurst um you know when when we were having you know when we were when we started thinking about expanding we started you know taking some meetings with with some governments and uh you know long island is interesting because you know there's counties and then there's towns and and within those towns there might be a village that is governed by its own private board Um, So, you know, this village of Lindenhurst kind of reached out to us and said, why don't you check out our town? Um, They were on the brink of a revitalization of their downtown. Right. It's a a really unique downtown in that it was sort of designed to be residential and, you know, manufacturing so that people could, you know, go to work and then walk home. Um, You know, so it's unique in that it's a, it has a downtown with some really large buildings. Um, they took us around and, and showed us a couple of spaces that had been vacant, and this CVS had been vacant for about three years. Oh wow! And and they were like, "Look, this is a ten thousand square foot building in you know downtown. We can you know help you with this development association that that is helping manufacturing firms." Right, and um, they really you know guided us through, and it was the Babylon IDA too, which really kind of, you know, significantly assisted us because otherwise, you know, the taxes on Long Island are astronomical as I'm sure they probably are in Miami. Yes. (laughs) You know, we, we would not have been able to have leased this building uh,
1: were it not for that assistance. Wow. Yeah.
0: We got a, we got a big tax abatement. So.
1: That's awesome, man. That is awesome. So the Lindenhurst locations open what now just over a year, just over a year. Yeah. (laughs) How has it been received by the public? I mean, is it just lights on? I mean, I know we're also coming kind of out of those two years of, well, you, know, you know.
0: It's interesting because, we you know, in Northport, we we definitely gained a big following there. I mean, of not just locals, but Long Islanders. Right. You know. So then opening up Lindenhurst, um, what you realize is that, you know, you're going into another town and you're really not known in that town. Right. So when we first opened, we saw a huge influx of people were coming in. People from town were coming in because they're like, oh, this new place is opening up, right? But then we had all of our other followers from all over kind of coming out to check out our new space. So in the beginning, it was it was hard to gauge. Like, And, and on top of that, we were in the middle of COVID, right? So it was like 50% occupancy. and right. no. So um, it was hard to kind of gauge who was here because... They're coming from Northport. They're coming from people who knew us and people who are, are, are kind of new customers, right? So um, now, over the year, it, it's an, it's evolved. So we see that you know we've got our loyal Lindenhurst following now, and the business has. I mean, the Lindenhurst business alone has grown so tremendously, awesome. which is really really great to see because you know it's like we took what we did in Northport and it was a, we were kind of able to just duplicate it, right? But in a larger, obviously a much larger
3: village. Yeah.
1: How, how far apart are the two breweries, actually?
3: They're about 25 miles apart.
1: And, yeah. and is Lindenhurst further east or where? It's, are
3: it's almost due south. From oh, it teleport. is.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah,
3: so we're on the south shore in Lindenhurst. And I'm sure you see this, too, and, you know, more to, like, what Kevin's talking about is that, you know, you sort of become adopted by your local environment. Yes. Um, and, and much of, you know, your feel and, and what you do is like a, a sort of an adaptation to what your customers want in some respects. Right. Right. You know, so we've been, we've been fortunate that Lindenhurst has adopted us, you know, um, in such a way.
1: That's awesome, man. That is awesome. So you're six years into this thing I mean, going on seven, really. I mean, you have two locations and a much love from fans all over the country, what do you attribute a lot of that success to you think i think
3: personally you know a lot you know kevin would probably have his own things to say about just you know being you know concerned with quality right but you know kevin's the brewer you know and and i'm not and so from my perspective you know it's really the the community like people like yourselves and and just how you know welcoming craft beer is because i think i think when you start talking to you know all of your friends that own businesses you get invaluable insights and you go they you know they open their doors to you and you walk through their brew houses and you you learn what's working and what's not so for for my perspective anytime i go on a trip or go to a festival like yours i walk out of there with like a ton of information um, which we bring back and try to implement, you know, as best we can.
1: Right. That's but awesome. I, you
3: know, Kevin would, you know, probably agree with that, but you know, I'm, you know, Kevin's concern for quality is, um, is pretty extreme. Yeah. And, and also I think, you know,
0: listening to, uh, the customers, um, uh, it's like over the years, I mean, of course, still that new England IPA, the easy right. IPAs are still, uh, you know, still on the scene but i mean people's palates and um desires have have certainly shifted yes so we've you know we've had to kind of pivot with that throughout but but that's part of being being a brewer right being in craft brewing it's it's great to to be able to experiment and be able to kind of just introduce new beers new styles um i mean that's the stuff that kind of keeps us excited to do what we're doing um and i mean i think that you know just kind of Seeing that over the over the course of the years uh, has really, and being able to respond to what people want has has helped to keep us, you know,
1: going on the scene. Yeah, and on the scene, absolutely. I think it's that adaptation to mm-hmm. the ever evolving beer scene in, in people's palates. I mean, because it's definitely changed over, yeah, you know, the seven years that we've been around, and it's yeah, constantly I- evolving. And, and it seems now we're going back to you know. People want loggers and 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 yeah. beer that tastes like beer and you know less fruit smoothies and less you know dessert uh, you know but it, it's that constant evolving change that we have to always shift to to meet the customers needs and wants so yeah, it, it, I mean, that that's definitely a big one.
0: I know, like Wakefest was one of our last festivals before the pandemic hit. Um, so that was th- two, well, two and a half years ago, yeah.
1: right? Yeah.
0: Um, and uh, I just remember at at that Wakefest, everyone was walking around. Everywhere you looked was a glass of Imperial Stout. Yep. Just everywhere. Yep. And everyone was pouring them and everyone was drinking them. Right. And this year, it was funny. Me and Bill were talking about it. This year, you're looking around and everybody's got a light beer in their hand. Yep. Like a lager, yep. a Pilsner. Yep. You know, sure, IPAs are still going, but it was like... So, you know, the Miami culture, I can tell, is shifting as oh, well. Yeah. Big time. You know? Yeah.
1: So, last question here for you guys. What's next for Sand City? A third location? Total uh, Long Island domination? Like, what are we looking at? You know what I mean?
0: I mean, um, that's a good question. You know, we're looking at spaces in Wynwood. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, um, we you know, right now we got our hands full with these two spots. Yeah. And it's sort of a uh you know, we're we're still growing into our space here and we're we're start we're we're starting to hit different, you know, different markets. Um and I mean I, I don't I don't see another brewery right in our future, but certainly tap rooms and, and that sort of thing, maybe you know, maybe some food spots.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What do you say, Bill?
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean we just started you know, ramping up on distribution a little bit, which is right. something we've never done uh, significantly and seriously, but it seems, it seems like owning the ways to, you know, sell your own beer is, is really kind of the, the smart thing to do. Um, you know, if, if we can go in with like a, a restaurant, you know, and have a tap room or just have a, a seasonal tap room somewhere, it just seems like the intelligent thing to do. Um you know, it's, it's, it's weird because now you're, you know, for us, like we're kind of conscious of creating a brand. Okay. Um, Which is something that almost people I think assume happens instantaneously. No, but like, you know, (laughs) it, it, it it doesn't in a way. Um, You know, so I think that's, that's really the thing, like growing into our space and, you know, going deep into our brand and going deep into our home, you know, into our backyard. And to piggyback off of what
0: Bill's saying with the, you know, so distribution, uh, New York is a state where we are allowed to self-distribute. Right. So we've, we've taken that, that task on rather than signing with, uh, signing with a third party.
1: Oh boy. And so, okay. I mean,
0: that's kind of our, that's our new business right now. There you now. go. Okay. Um, where, you know, we're investing in trucks, personnel and, 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 and the business of distributing beer. Okay. So... It's like, you know, at the moment, it's sure Lindenhurst is open and we're still growing into this space, but we're also expanding our distribution team. Right. So that's like where, where our focus is right now. And then, you know, but after that, yeah, like we said, some maybe some tap rooms and, and that sort of stuff.
1: Well, I want to thank you guys very much for joining the show today, man. It's been awesome to uh, sit down and talk to you guys again. You know, I know we just yeah. saw each other, but it's always good speaking with you guys. And Thank you, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show, man. We yeah, appreciate we're, your guys' time. we
3: fortunate. You know, thanks so much for asking us. We appreciate it.
1: Oh, no yeah, problem at great. all. We'll see you guys for soon for on. sure, man.
3: You're
0: listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture.
2: Our next guest is a Miami native who moved to Denver, Colorado to earn a master's degree in social work. After a few years in the field, she decided to follow her true passion for the food and culture of her family's motherland, Cuba. She opened Cuba Cuba, the only Cuban restaurant in Denver at that time, and brought her beloved food and culture to the Mile High City. Over the years, her empire has grown to six locations as she has become the keeper of all things Cuban in her adopted home.
1: Welcome to the Beer Hour. Christy Socara Bigelow, how are you?
2: Very good, thank you.
1: Thank you very much for joining us today. It is uh, our pleasure to have you on. So, which part of Miami did you grow up in?
4: I grew up uh, mostly in the Grove, uh, South Miami, Kiwi Biscayne, and Coral Gables, kind of all over around there.
1: What do you, like what do you remember about growing up in a in a Cuban family in Miami? That is so like, Oh my God. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> I, I really, like how she I mean, says, Oh my God. You know,
4: well, it's a, uh, it was amazing. It really was. Cause Miami was really small back then, or it felt really small. Okay. And um, I was surrounded by all the same kind of culture, which is almost a one-off because we're the one generation that was raised Cuban in the United States. But, uber Cuban. Like in my house, we spoke Spanish. We only cooked Cuban food. Um, all the, uh, all everything that we did was centered around what they had done in Cuba, but now we're in Miami. And then, you know, our parents, like my mom, for instance, would never want to speak English, even though she speaks English. And she would just grab from like the American culture, what was beneficial to her, but it was all Cuban, you know, like was like, That's awesome. you know, if I spoke English in the house, she wouldn't answer me. Oh, you know? boy. And then, but we stepped outside <laughs> of the house and all our friends were speaking English, you know, amongst each other, because that's, it's almost like a rebellious thing, too. It's like, I don't want to speak Spanish, you know, right. I'm living in the United States, I'm American. But it, it really was, in retrospect, amazing. It was loud, it was music, in my house anyway, because I have a very big family. So, it, it was great.
1: What role, as you were, you were speaking about, what role did food play in your family
4: so my grandmother, um, when she moved to the United States, started a. she started taking notes. She was a really good cook, my grandmother and my great-grandmother. My mother, don't tell her, was not a very good cook at all. But <laughs> okay. my grandmother and my great-grandmother were amazing cooks. And she started a cookbook before, like, Nietzsche Villapol, which is the first Cuban cookbook that we are familiar with. So she started it. And I, I have it. I have it in notes. But her husband and her father were like, what are you, crazy? You know, you got no place doing a cookbook. We just got to the United States. There's no way. We, up until she lived until she was 98 years old. Wow. So we would talk about that. You know, as an adult, I would talk to her about it all the time and how frustrating for her. But in, it was, uh, in the day-to-day, you know, I ate Cuban food, like you've had at Versailles or Carrera or, you know, Habana Vieja, whatever. But it was the family get-togethers where we would really, they would get crazy and they would make the paella de arroz con pollo. um, And it was all centered around that. Like, who's going to bring what? How much are you going to bring? Because this brother eats so much. Make sure you have, you know. (laughs) And then it was also the, you know, celebrating like the china and the roasted pork. You know, all this ends up coming back to me when I start opening the restaurant. You know? At the time, you're just thinking it's food that we're eating and it's given to me and whatever. But... It was a very big part of how I was raised.
1: A lot of good memories. <laughs> so Colorado is actually pretty far from Miami in many, in many ways. What was behind your move there after you graduated from college? Like, what was your goal to get some distance from your family, spread your wings? Like, you know, what was the whole idea about the move to Colorado?
4: Well, long story short um I wasn't allowed to go away to college Ooh,
1: okay. because
4: I was one of the there was like 3 of us in my group and uh, I was one of the lucky ones so I had to live <laughs> at home I was always a kid that everywhere I went I wanted to move there We went to the Bahamas I wanted to move to the Bahamas we went to New York I wanted to move to New York I wanted to get away and right. explore and as soon as I realized okay I'm okay on my own I just didn't want to disrespect my mother I took a trip to Colorado with a friend from Miami who had an apartment in Breckenridge and But I did a one-way ticket, knowing I would stay. And then I stayed in for two seasons snowboarding, started working in restaurants. And my mother was appalled. She's like, you know, olera comida. you're going to smell like food. This is awful. That was like her biggest thing. Like, you're going to come home and smell like food. I'm like, well, there's always a shower. But it's like, you know, this is awful. Why would you even do that? Why would you want to do that? Anyway, so I loved it. Moved to Denver. And Denver was a... You know, the culture in Denver is... Um, like you said, super different than Miami. Couldn't right. be more different. Oh, absolutely. But I, j- I jive with it really well. Nice. And I really liked the sense of community and uh, sort of open arms, especially because I was like, in you know, a lot of their eyes, the first Cuban they had ever met. Right. You know? So it was right. like, you know, it, it was really nice to feel that way, you know?
1: Right.
4: Like we're a dime a dozen in Miami, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're everywhere. everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere, yes. So you've actually earned a master's degree in social work. Yeah. But you found that it didn't really, you know, light your fire. No. What what do you think was missing when you finally became a social worker from the difference there?
4: The finality, like seeing your seeing the closure, seeing um, your success. It's very difficult. And I think I really like it. It resonates with me to like have the closing of a day. Right. You know, I'm done with my day. You know, we're moving on to the next day. And I really struggled with the I worked with female gangs, which I really, really enjoyed. And the problem was because I spoke Spanish, they, the center where I was working started putting me in areas that I didn't love. Like uh, drug and alcohol wasn't my jam. I really wasn't learned in it. it I was, I hadn't studied, you know, how to approach that. But, you know, they were short on people and they needed Spanish speaking. And that was me. And I really started struggling with that, seeing these kids like really deteriorating and me not be feeling like I couldn't really help. Right. And it was, like, it was like spinning wheels. That's how I felt. Right. And even though I spoke with my you know, advisors and my, you know, my prog- my bosses and all that. I just, I couldn't get over that hump. And I found myself, you know, age old, like Sunday afternoons, like almost like in tears and like hiding. Cause I didn't want to bug my husband about it. Cause it's like, you know, I just finished my master's and I have a great gig and I have a great life, but it, it wasn't for me. I just needed something a little more like uh, where I could see the results. Um, I think that's the best way to put it.
1: So you actually met a guy from Denver, got married yeah. all the while, in the back of your mind, you had a desire to open a Cuban restaurant in Denver. At the time, there was none. What do you recall about that moment that you decided to take the plunge and leave behind the career that you had invested so much to pursue?
4: Um, well, it was super-duper scary, um, but I think the excitement kind of was stronger than the scariness. I had a girlfriend from Miami. This was the final, when I said, you know, I kind of like, pushed over the line and said, I'm doing this because my husband kept saying, you know, why do you keep talking about it? Just do it. And I was like, how do you do that? How do you open a restaurant? You know, I was right. like, I was 25 at the time. I was like, I don't know how to do that. And he goes, Christy, look, it's, have you seen the restaurants out there? It's, it's not, you know, it's not rocket science. You know, I know numbers. We find a cook, you're the front, you know how to run the front. So I started with that, but, um, I allowed myself like I ended up purchasing the two oldest houses in Denver and that's what houses my original restaurant. So it's super duper charming, but it also allowed me like a good year to sort of um, fall, like mold myself into what I needed to do and be ready. Right. And I think psychologically I did that because there was a space that I had. I walked out of the meeting and I oh. said, this isn't it, I can't do it. And it really was because I wasn't ready. Like I wasn't confident enough. And even then when I opened the doors, I had a nervous breakdown the second day. So I was wrapped up in a ball in my bed. My husband's like, you're going to be okay," You know, because we just invested a ton of money. And I was like, I was like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I was like, I was like, "I, I don't even this is harder than I thought. But we ended up closing three days in a row to like get our bearings, my brother and I. And then that was it. And from then on out, it was like, you know, we didn't even look back. And it was really the best thing I ever did.
1: How did your family back in Miami react to you opening a Cuban restaurant in Denver?
4: Well, the fact that I was going to (laughs) be in a restaurant, like, plants you in a place. Yes, yes. So my mom was devastated. You know, my stepfather was super proud and super happy, and he thought it was the best thing. So when he would come, he would come in his guayabera, and he'd be, like, behind the bar. You know, for him, it was his party, you know? Right. My mom at the beginning, now, if you go online and see her Facebook, it's like, look at my daughter. Look at everything that I did. Like, I pushed her to do the restaurant, (laughs) and look at her, you know? It's like, I was her biggest. And she is. She's my biggest cheerleader. But at the same time, you know, I'm her only daughter, and she's got two boys. She wants me near her. Right. And also her, the restaurant's
2: It it takes a while, yeah. It takes a while for our moms to um, kind of let go. No, but and be okay with the fact of us work. Because I used to be a pastry chef before I started working here, and my mom was like, "Tú tienes que estudiar negocio, tú tienes que ser." And I'm like, "Mom, but I don't want to study business. I don't want to. I don't. I'm not good in that traditional route. So here I am, still creating, but beer instead.
4: It's it's. She's so right. And for me, it was more. My mom wanted me. You know what my mom had said. My mom did not let me go away to school because she was afraid I was going to meet a guy from Colorado and get married and stay there. Well, She, like, wrote it in the stars because I had only been to Colorado once. And then it was like, and that's what ended up happening, you know?
1: Wow. But Wow. She had the foresight.
4: Yeah. All
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> so one of your initial challenges in opening a Cuban restaurant in Denver was to find a chef who could be trained to cook authentic Cuban cuisine. You don't have to look far. Who was your first chef at Cuba, Cuba?
4: My brother, my half-brother Enrique, oh. who I was not raised with, but um, we always had a lot of love for each other. It was my dad's second wife's kid, and, um, and we always loved each other, but I hadn't seen him in years. Another brother found, saw him, said, Chris, he's opening a restaurant. He was working at, he had worked at Cafe Pastiz. He, he had worked at a bunch of restaurants in Miami, and he's four years younger than me. He flew out. To check it out, he was 23 years old. Oh wow! And he's like, I'll come out, Chris. I'll come out here for a year and help you out. He still lives in Colorado, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so it, it was. It was really the. It was really the trifecta. It was like a perfect trio because my husband was numbers. He was never in the restaurant. He was all behind the house. He was a hedge fund trader. But it was me in the front, and then Enrique was an artist and a chef. But he had never run a kitchen, and I had never run a restaurant. So it's like. It's almost like ignorance is bliss. So I got very lucky that Enrique came out and helped me and trained everybody and kind of, you know, put the menu together. And, you know, we started small, but it was the menu was small, but it was incredible. We had a two hour wait the first day we opened.
1: So do you I mean, you guys purchased this house in the Golden Triangle neighborhood of Denver and opened July 27th of 2001. Your birthday, actually.
4: It is worst birthday in my life. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) to follow that what what do you recall about that opening night
4: um i recall that we weren't open we weren't ready excuse me to open but you know it's like brooms in the closet like everybody let's go you know and people thank god it was like it was a soft opening but i'll tell you that might have been tougher than the non-soft opening the soft opening was like a bunch of people that were my husband's family's friends that but it really was a nightmare (laughs) it's a nightmare (laughs)
1: Who were like some of your early customers, locals, family members, like who kind of set that early pace for that restaurant?
4: Probably the most adventurous um, foodies in Denver, really. I mean, I was up against eight boutique restaurants in Denver. That was it. It was very small. Denver was like a small town back then. And there were very few boutique style, like cool restaurants that weren't chain um, in the city. And so I had all the Cubans, of course, that, came out with their flags like the first day and put them <laughs> on the table. I had a lot of that, like tears running down their face, right. hugging me. So That's proud. amazing. Had, That's amazing. Like if they had changed my diaper when I was little, like, uh, you know, like, it was, <laughs> but it was amazing. Cause I was now getting them together. Like we were creating this hub where they can right. hang out. Right. And it's become that. Um, and then it was also these people that had traveled and were a little more learned or just curious, really curious and, we're so excited. People were so excited and grateful that I had done this. They welcomed me with open arms. No joke.
1: That is awesome. Open arms. That yeah. is
2: awesome. Hmm. I have to do your name drop. Um. It's Socarras Bigelow. No. Socarra. Socarra. Socarras. Socarras. Because there's an accent no, on the no, a. No. Not
1: not s. It's Socarra. Socarra. Socarra.
2: It, there's you. an accent oh, yeah, on but the a. No, yeah. But Bigelow, right? Yes. And I, there's no
4: relation to there's no relation to the president, by okay. the way, if you're if you're wondering.
2: Oh. You're listening to the beer hour with Jonathan Wakefield and we are speaking to Christy Socarra Bigelow.
1: Bang. you got so, it. You got it. <laughs> so you talk about this small menu. What dishes did you have on that initial menu?
4: On the first menu and hasn't come off yet is bacafrita. That's our kind of all time. We had uh, Picadillo, Pollo a La Plancha. We had a Bacardi Painted Mahi because my brother and I's argument was always like he got so bored. He's like, I'm going to be doing like this Picadillo, Picadillo, right. Picadillo for the rest of my life. He goes, you got to let me expand and get creative. So we always left like 20 percent of the menu for stuff that he would create, which was really fun. So we had um, Bacardi Painted Mahi. I remember he did that. Um, we had tamarones al ajillo, Ooh, the okay. shrimp, okay. we had empanadas, um, Cuban bread, mariquitas, tres leche was always a big one, and flan. Oh,
1: uh, ropa vieja, kind of the starters, any Europa uh,
4: came later, ah, it okay. came later, but I do have it,
1: okay, okay, it, it did come. I mean, it seems like authenticity has been one of your guiding principles. I, I'm guessing that sourcing was more challenging in those early days. How did you deal with all the like the all important issue of serving real Cuban bread, for example, in Denver?
4: Yeah, that's a great question, because um, it, the bread itself was really, really important to me. So I still to date have it shipped here. Oh, it gets shipped in frozen logs. We proof it and cook it off here.
1: Oh, wow. Because,
4: okay. And I have friends that have bakeries here. They're Cuban. But the bread, I fell in love with our bread and. That's what I went with. And I never changed it. We tried to make it ourselves; It wasn't the same. And, um, everything else we were able to get, there's times that there's shortages right in certain things, um, plantains and stuff. But, you know, I have a Dominican vendor who helps me get, he goes, you know, straight to the market, gets the best plantains, gets yuca, malanga. We can get it. Okay. Um, but it's taken a little while, you know, there's certain things as we like to make everything in house fresh. So it was like, um, you know, getting platanos that weren't, weren't, ripe yet, or we're, you know, et cetera, has always been a challenge, but, um, but it's fine now, now 20 years later, it's like, sorry that your Maduro isn't that ripe. You know, there's nothing I can do. I'm in Denver, Colorado, right. I'm doing the best I can. There's only home, so many I can put in a paper bag and, you know, let it ripen, you know? And so...
2: She's giving up all Her. the old school tricks. By the way, no, no. But I, I, mean, I, I, listen, I know. I know. I'm, I'm telling our listeners okay. that maybe are in Montana and have no if want, idea. If you what want to a fast forward, is. absolutely. If you absolutely. want to fast
1: forward the maturation of a banana or a, or a maduro, mango or a right, plantain, it, yeah. you, you wrap it in a brown paper bag. Uh, yes, and yes. you yes. put it
2: in a cabinet, Alahol. Yeah, I'll yeah. <laughs> you see. <laughs> She's good
4: and uh, Cuban coffee. That was a hit. Oh. Cafe con like cafe con leche. We got, we made an iced one. Of do, like, uh, do you guys have? A ventan- do you have a ventanita? I have ventani- ventanillas big because I, it's not worth having a little one in any of my locations. But I do have like the bar with the glass oh, doors that open Amazing, and I consider that my ventanita. You know, so oh. it gets me. That makes me excited. You know,
1: that's awesome. So fast forward to today you have five more locations in addition to the original one are the other five locations more sandwich and like smaller dishes than fine dining or are they on the same line as as the original
4: well the original is kind of you know regarded as like kind of up here you know it, it really is a special place and it has it has the most sophisticated dishes that I have under our umbrella of Guaguas, right. um, Guas. But I have another one, a location in Castle Rock that's fairly new. And we do live music. And that one is also full service and has 90% of the originals menu. Um, and then the four other ones that are a little more casual, they all have mojito bars. Ooh. They all have rum bars, you know, small, right, right. albeit whatever. But, um, and then those are more dedicated to, sandwiches, but I do have, like, now we have propa vieja, paca frita, ah, picadillo, you know, okay. we do polla la plancha, that stuff, but it's, like, it'll be a smaller portion, or like, for instance, Palomia, I do a New York strip pounded thin, Ooh, okay. which is the best pan you you've ever had at the cafe and bar, the original, okay. but I use, I use a different cut of meat at the other restaurants, because if not, I'd have to charge so high. You know, so I'm just trying no, yeah. to bring yeah, it to the bathroom a little bit, you know?
1: So you kind of led me into my next question. So I'm guessing okay. that if I just asked a random person on the streets of Denver where I could get a legit mojito, they would direct me to Cuba Cuba. I mean, For sure. your your Bacardi rep told you that you are the biggest Bacardi Limon client in the West. In the West, yeah. Tell us about your cocktail program and how did it impact the su- like the success of the restaurant? It
4: was that was a beautiful surprise because i even though i love the bar and i i was geared toward that and i was a bartender and uh my dad my stepfather so he raised me my stepdad did he um told me when i was doing the menu he goes "Tiene que poner un mojito at the time 20 years ago even in miami we weren't really drinking no. mojitos you no. see them at no. restaurants but no. i never had had one no. and so my dad goes Trust me, trust me. Right. Okay, mojito. I'm like, okay, I'll put the mojito. So we put the mojito first night. We're making mojitos and muddling, and people are just, like, blown away. It it took off from there. There was no – because it, I get – like, in Asia to Cuba, I think, was open before I was. And so there were restaurants that I guess were serving, it. I just didn't know. So we started doing a mango mojito and a regular mojito. I'm talking 400 mojitos on a Friday night. Whoa. Second week, we were open. So we started growing our – Our cocktail program around our rums. Now we have a hundred rums at that location, and educating. Basically, I've had Andre, my bartenders, with me eighteen years. My other manager slash bartenders with me seventeen years. They are first of all they're Cubanized completely, like Cubanized, (laughs) and they have this like this thing with their rum. Like our rum program grew, and all our drinks kind of centered around that. Because that's what we're good at. You know, obviously we make we make caipirinhas, which is also a big one for us, yep. sangria. Yep. And we have, you know, vodka and gin and all that. But really, you don't come to my restaurant for wine. No. You come for rum right. and you come for the mojitos. Nice. And everyone still talks about it. They'll come to the restaurant, they'll be like, No, no, I don't like a mojito and I'll be like, I'll bring them a mojito on me. I'm like, just try this one because it's really good. And uh, it's not extra sweet and it's really strong. And that's kind of what we're known for. But it's it's very
1: good. I'm gonna have to come uh- get a mojito now you are Uh, uh, you know at cuba cuba all
4: right come to you and make it one
1: in miami absolutely i mean it would probably still be better than some of the ones i've had down here (laughs) so you are a mother of three children i'm sure it's more difficult to keep them connected to their cuban heritage living in denver than if you lived here in miami of course how do you ensure that they still embrace the cuban culture even though they're growing up in the heartland
4: Um, I'm very lucky in that the restaurants have allowed for me to, um, really surround them with my culture. Um, they speak Spanish. I only spoke to them in Spanish. Um, if they want, like if they wanted a phone, they had to speak Spanish for two months before every day, you know, things like that. I bribed (laughs) them, whatever it took. Um, my son for, I mean, my son went to salsa lessons with me last week. This is a kid who plays football and is going to Ole Miss next year. Nice. He's like, but he's like, Mom, I want to do it. They love Miami. Their their group of boys is called the Cuban Boys. That's like their group. They're all American. They couldn't be more American. But they embraced it because they realized how unique it is and what a gift it is. It's just as they got older, they right. realized it. My My daughters, who are 14 and 12, are still struggling, like still fighting with me about the Spanish. Right. But they go to Miami and they're like... Mom, I love how, you know, these women take care of themselves and how your my mom is always dressed up nice and, you know, and how
1: Even to go to Publix. Around,
4: like, the food and, like, <laughs> the food and the, she, they love it. They come, yeah. Lile is already working at the restaurant. She's 14. And Mitchell is already working at the restaurant. Nice. And uh, at one of the restaurants. And so I've been lucky in that, you know, and pushing it because I, it's like you leave Miami and I feel like, All is like more of your Cuban-ness comes out. You embrace your culture even more and you appreciate it even more.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, and and they do take better care of themselves. I mean, they dress to the nines even to go to Publix. (laughs) So it's a different, different feel for sure.
4: Like as you're talking, I'm getting a text here and it's from my Cuban group here. Oh, nice. And they they range from 70 to I'm the youngest. And, oh, uh, wow. and there's like 10 of us and they're constantly like everything that's going on in Cuba, what's going on in Denver that relates to Cuba or Miami, <laughs> you know, and
1: are you the Versailles of the West?
4: Um, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not. Versa- you know what? The owner of is When I called him, he was my neighbor. I called him and I said, "Hey, I'm opening a restaurant in Denver. Will you help me?" And he goes, "Find something else to do." And
1: oh. he hung up the phone. Oh, whoa! Nice. And
4: look at how awesome his restaurant is. But his is like his is like a tourist attraction. Yes. You know. Yeah, it's also but, like uh, a political but, draw. <laughs> but if you ask anyone in Colorado, maybe even California, most people know Kuwaku well, Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. It's been around for a long time, and it's really charming.
1: So I got one last question for you. I mean, obviously, we have a former pastry chef sitting here. Yep. We're going to shout out your most popular dessert. What is the key, also one of my favorites, actually, to making a killer tres leches?
4: And tres leches not being a Cuban dessert, but I didn't know that until 10 years after I was open, by the way. Oh, really? A Cuban friend of mine came in and said... I'm like, I didn't know. You know, ours is really simple, but our, the trick, like, I think what takes my tres leches to the next level is the fresh merengue and the oh. caramel candy that we put on top. So I take the flour and we sprinkle it on top and uh, with the fresh merengue. And for me, that takes it to the next level. And he also, our recipe had cloves in it. Okay. Like very little bit of cloves, And I don't know if that's common because I'm not a pastry chef at all. And uh, But I love it even dry, you know, when it comes out of the oven, like Ooh, to soak okay. it in my coffee. Yeah.
2: Mm. No, tra- tradition. I mean, from what I understand, it's a Central American dessert. Um, yeah, it is. And uh, there is no clove, but everyone has their iterations. Like yeah. I use coconut milk. Like Mm -hmm. for Coquito, I use that in the soak.
1: That's a Puerto Rican thing.
2: I mean, I'm half Puerto Rican. (laughs) What can I tell? But here's a funny story just for you. I am the youngest of three, and my parents moved here in February of 83 from Venezuela. My mom's Puerto Rican. My dad's from Spain. They're sitting at La Carreta on Bird Road and 87th Avenue. My mom is way pregnant with me, and all of a sudden, her water breaks In La Carreta while she's eating Una Elena Rue. So they rushed, there you go. They rushed to to, uh, Mercy Hospital and I was born right after. So I'm Cuban by relation. So good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good story, right? That's such a Miami story. I was born at Mercy too. There you go. Ah, Viste?
1: Thank you very much, Christy, for being on the show today.
2: Alice this has been delightful. Thank yes, you. I love thank it. Thank you, a you pleasure. Very much. Thank and, uh, you. We love having our Miami people absolutely. on. Absolutely.
1: It's been great. Thank you. Thank you again. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, William Kiernan, Kevin Seiler, and Christy Sokara Bigelow, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the Sirius XM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.